I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about Batman, a Batman podcast. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show. Yeah. Yeah. I am a podcast. Whoa. Hey. Interviews with fans and people. Welcome to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an interview variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon, Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Affordable Cliffside Labs. Are you hopelessly looking to reform your self-absorbed, shape-shifting criminal lover? Why not do it with an ocean view? Affordable Cliffside Labs, because if you're going to get into a bad relationship, at least give yourself something nice to look at while you're processing it. Today's episode, Mudslide. Clayface is back, and he's falling apart, literally. Lucky for him, he's duped a celebrity-obsessed scientist from his movie star days to work on a remedy. But it requires the shape-shifting celluloid star to steal money to pay for the expensive components of the remedy, putting him back on Batman's radar. Original air date, September 15th, 1993. Story by Alan Burnett with the teleplay by Steve Perry. Directed by show co-creator Eric Radomski. Music composed by Shirley Walker with animation by Studio Junio. Starring Kevin Conroy as Batman, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. as Alfred, Rob Clotworthy as Billy, Pat Music as Stella Bates, Ron Perlman, always great, as Clayface, and Marshall Wallace as Fiancé. Today's guest... Luke Mears. Like I mentioned in the last fan interview, way back when this podcast regularly released episodes, the Patreon offered a reward tier where fans of the show could become guests. And this is one of those fantastic guests. So, without further ado, let's get to their interview. Here we are, back for another Batman the Animated Podcast. I am sitting down with Luke Mears. How are you? I am as well as can be expected. Thank you. How are you? I'm as well as can be expected. Uh, or maybe <laughs> maybe better than expected in a pandemic, but I feel like asking people how, how they're doing is like the most insane, troubling <laughs> question at this point. Yeah, but it's really polite as well, isn't it? And, you know, the the other person in the conversation might think you're being rude if you don't at least ask how they are. Yeah, it feels weird to avoid, like, the largest elephant in the room at this point, <laughs> especially globally, where it's like, yeah, we're all in the same thing. You know, this is our Independence Day, but instead of uniting against aliens, uh, we're, we're some of us are maybe saying those aliens aren't there, even though they're uh, attacking and killing people next to us. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a strange time. But we're here to talk about Batman the Animated Series, which has been a soothing thing for me. I feel like I've gone to this kind of stuff uh, as as a nice sort of uh, reprieve from all of 
well, everything going on. It's been nice to kind of revisit this sort of stuff. Have you watched a lot? Uh, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos, actually, about Batman the Animated Series, because I've, I've give you a little bit of background. I've seen every episode, perhaps hundreds of times. I can probably recite the dialogue from, from a bunch of them just off the top of my head. So I quite like watching videos from other people. So that's how I'm occupying myself at the moment. Totally. Yeah, I've, I dove into YouTube in a, in a new way. I mean, I've been diving a lot into like, you know, lost theme park attractions. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've seen, I feel like Batman, I mean, and not that the animated series wasn't popular uh, throughout the last 20 years or so, but I feel like in the last five or so, like right around when I started the podcast, I've seen like more and more uh, attention on it. And I wonder if it's just like the age demographic is finally like, grown up and uh, we're seeing so much more coverage of like old TV and stuff that it's, it feels like a golden age for this era of animation to be covered in kind of like a critical and detailed way. Yeah, definitely. I think there's also um, perhaps uh, like a financial element to it as well. Like most of us are kind of settled now, hopefully got maybe got a little bit more disposable income so we can spend more money on tax, like, uh, you know, like all those DC collectibles action figures and stuff. I mean, not even that. At this point, it's like DC collectibles, and then like every company seems to have their own. It's like there are like two or three Batman board games, a dice game, like Diamond yep. was putting out stuff. There's like busts of everything. There are new Bendy figures. I never thought we'd see Bendy figures, things that I didn't like as a kid, but, but somehow like are being marketed to adults. <laughs> Yeah, and you can't resist them either. You're like, well, if I don't buy it, they won't make any more. And I must yeah, have I that didn't... Condiment King bendy figure. God, uh, do they have one? <laughs> no, but maybe if we keep buying them. I know that they do have a Talia al Ghul. There, there's a Talia bendy yeah. figure. That much I know, which that alone is insane to me. <laughs> yeah, it's not really the like, the most uh... dynamic uh, figure, really, is it? No, I was at Comic-Con a couple years ago when you can be in a large sweaty room with people. Uh, and uh, they, I saw that there was like a five pack of, you know, it was like a Gotham Girls kind of thing. So it was like Harley, Ivy, mm. Catwoman. I think Talia was thrown in there just because. But uh, then they also had an Alfred one. And I was like, this, I know this is new because when we were younger, they wouldn't have made those characters that I wanted <laughs> in, yeah. in this uh, toy form. So it's it's just weird to see every niche sort of get explored. Uh, except we are not getting Condiment King, Maxi Zeus, whatever, Red Claw. Uh, give give me those C and D listers, please. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm desperate for them. I'm the guy that's always on the uh, the DC Collectibles Facebook page going now. Okay, fine. You're releasing some characters that were never in the show before, but where is the Condiment King? Where's Rupert Thorne? Come on, you're crazy. I'm the one texting Jim Fletcher about it. So <laughs> <laughs> good, keep it up. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I think they got to sell uh, bigger characters to justify the the smaller characters. So I, I know that at least those DC collectibles or DC Direct guys, again, mm. uh, at this point, are they're excited about those characters. But I think it's one of those things where it sounds like you got to justify people just you know aren't buying the Condiment King in droves, or at least like you know the Renee Montoya's uh, of the world, even though we all want them. So I'm hoping that. These new, the, the Adventures Continues line at least spurs people to uh, buy more so yeah. that it, uh, we get the others. Are you reading that comic? Are you keeping up with it? I am religiously, yes. 
it's so nice to, to have a new Batman animated thing happening. Yeah, it's it's certainly raised a lot of questions for me. Let's dive into Mudslide, because that's the episode that you chose, or one of the ones that you put forth. And you, you love Clayface, right? Yeah, I'm also really afraid of him. Tell me about that. Where did where did that like start? Okay. Was it from the animated series or elsewhere? Yes, absolutely. So to to set the scene, you know, this is when uh when Batman the animated series first came out. I'm perhaps, you know, six, maybe seven years old. Uh I'm watching I watched it religiously every Saturday morning, which is when it was on in the UK. And I'm I'm around my grandmother's house. I'm sat in front of the TV a couple of inches away from it. Uh, I'm eating breakfast, which is porridge which is oatmeal mm-hmm. for Americans, sitting there happily eating it, watching Feet of Clay Part 1. And then Clayface's origin happens where they force feed him all that goop. And in my infant mind, it's the same thing. And I just ran upstairs, threw up everywhere. It was awful. It was horrific. And um, I've got a very vivid memory of kind of looking up from the, from the toilet bowl, just feeling awful, looking up and seeing a pot of moisturizer on my grandmother's bathroom shelf and i in my mind again it's the same thing i went oh my god it was just sick everywhere again it really traumatized me but it's fantastic i love it as a as an adult but i still have that childhood trauma in the back of my mind every time i see him in fact every time i hear ron perlman speak i kind of go a little bit (laughs) (laughs) it just starts to bubble up This is why horror is effective. I mean, like, mm. especially for the, the, this kind of show, I feel like this is one of the kind of horror villains. Uh, this is yeah. sort of like this. I mean, that's one of the scariest shots, I think, in the entire series. Uh, so the fact that when when did you watch, you know, a Clayface episode again without being afraid of it? Like, did you wait a certain amount of time or was it kind of like, yes. I'm diving in, feel the fear? <laughs> So I used to record every episode on on VHS so that I could watch them again. And uh, at the time, you know, you didn't know what episode was going to be on most of the time. So I would just blanketly start recording. And I can vividly remember being about 10 years old when they were doing reruns, recording it, and saw Feet of Clay Part 1. And I just went, nope, dive forward, press stop on the record, turn the <laughs> TV off, left the room. <laughs> so I, I don't think I actually watched it fully again until I was about sort of 17 and it still makes me uncomfortable it's it's i don't know if it's a good uncomfortable uh or a bad uncomfortable i guess for me what sounds appealing about it is that you still have like that kind of childlike reaction to something which maybe is related to a traumatic experience (laughs) but i feel like when i watch like scary movies that like terrify like the vhs box art scared Mm. you know the hell out of me as a kid uh, I'll still kind of have that sort of, uh, I'll go back to that fear. And like, now I'm like, Oh good. This movie can do what it's intending to do rather than feel like, you know, Oh, I'm, I'm beyond this. Uh, so to like still have the, that visceral feeling is kind of something that's like nice to be able to latch onto, even if it's (laughs) throwing up forage. (laughs) I think people have, most people I would say have some sort of weird neurotic phobia, and I'm really mm-hmm. fortunate that mine is an obscure episode of like a 90s cartoon. So I don't come across it in my everyday life. You know, other people, it's spiders, it's clowns, whatever. Yeah, you're, you're not worried about finding a clay face in the corner building a clay face web. Uh... <laughs> well, oh, God, should I be? This episode. <laughs> yeah, watch out. He's everywhere. He can shapeshift into a spider. Um, 
the fact that you chose a Clayface episode is super interesting to me. So you're like drawn to this character as a result of that, though. Like you still like the episodes. Yeah, yeah I do. I, I really like Feet of Clay Part Two, and actually, I didn't watch Feet of Clay Part Two for about a decade. I just never saw it because obviously my mother saw my reaction to part one. She said, you're not watching that again. Not actually understanding how sequential storytelling works. You know, they're not going to show that same scene in every single episode. Um, Right. Anyway, that's that's an aside. Um, She was doing probably, she was, she was just making sure that you were well fed and not throwing up everything else. (laughs) Yeah. Can't waste those oats, right? (laughs) No. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I um, I do really like the Clayface stories. I'm really quite drawn to them. I think because they're so they're so sad, they're so miserable, and that's kind of like a very kind of British thing. We like losers and sad stories. We don't like you know really handsome people that get the girl and always you know always succeed. We find that boring. Um, and it's as I was, as I got older, so it's kind of around the time I went to university, I, I did a degree in film studies, and I found myself being drawn to like classic Hollywood. Maybe subconsciously, in the back of my mind, that there was a little bit of of Matt Hagen in there, but yeah. I, I've, I always loved um, Marlon Brando um, and Montgomery Clift, and a little bit of James Dean. I do like James Dean, but he did, obviously didn't do a huge amount for me to latch on to. And it was when I was in university, I noticed a lot of parallels between the Matt Hagen character and Montgomery Clift, which I I actually sent you a question for the podcast when you were talking to Dan Reber to Uh interrogate him. And he said, yeah, maybe. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I think like I was imprinted with a lot of old Hollywood just from not only the Matt Hagen stuff, but I feel like the animated series did was rooted in in that like visual mm. style and i feel like a lot of the reference that they would pull for characters for gangsters and that kind of stuff were just old hollywood actors uh or archetypes uh from different movies i mean like you watch like it's never too late and it feels like it's pulling from different threads of those kind of movies uh so yeah i i mean and i don't think i knew it until later uh for sure i probably have talked about it on the podcast but when i switched to also doing film studies at school i ended up writing you know uh, my application essentially about batman the animated series and you know that's how i wanted to get into film school showing that i liked film based off of this filter of cartoon and this episode is all about the references definitely Uh, yeah i mean you got yeah you you've got your streetcar named desire you've got your psycho and other hitchcock stuff you've got you've got a ton yeah, and he's a walking Oscar at one point. So yes, <laughs> which I didn't get until later. I think you know when I watched it as a kid, I was kind of like, "Well, that's kind of a bad design." <laughs> like I wasn't, <laughs> yeah. I was, I was bummed that he wasn't like goopy and and cool looking. And I was like, I guess this is fine. But I wanted a Clayface episode where he wasn't stuck in the suit. And I was like, oh, this is very funny. The idea that he's trapped in his own ideal of fame, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. is, is such a an ironic punishment uh that he kind of butts up against so mudslide is a follow-up for those of you that don't know to feet of clay which is the two-parter uh that introduced clayface to us and it sort of left with clayface you know being uh still alive but nobody knows uh and and what i like about this episode personally overall is like it's one of the continuity driven episodes where 
you could drop in and it's you'd still know what's going on. You know who the bad guy is. You know he's a shapeshifter. They do enough of that if you've never seen Feet of Clay. But I love that they continued the story. They did this, you know, mm. a few times, like Two Face or Clock King got a second episode. And I feel like this one felt like the the continuation of an emotional narrative journey, which I I feel like works really well. Yeah, I agree. And the music is so good in this episode. I mean, Feet of Clay had fantastic music as well, but the music here is just it's chef kiss worthy. <laughs> yes, it's de- I feel like it's deeper into production. So like they kind of they, they had fine tuned everything like the first two, whatever, Feet of Clay one and two was good. But I feel like it was still in that zone where the show was finding its footing and it mm. happened to be a standout two parter. Whereas this one, yeah, was later in the series. And, ooh, that music is so good. Uh, and, and it's got this big, like, big Hollywood, like, sad bravado, kind of like a Sunset Boulevard-y yeah. <laughs> vibe, too. Um, it's just, I, and I just was reading some trivia on it, which I didn't know this, but I guess it was an, uh, an episode that Eric Radomski came up with because there was so much fan demand for another Clayface episode, which... I can't even imagine how fans were communicating with the creators in any way with it without the internet, or at least before it was like really widely used. Cause I think when this came out, I guess it must've just been at conventions, letters, like, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's just hard to imagine that sort of direct access. Yeah. Maybe the old crazy person standing around outside going, when's the next Clayface episode? <laughs> yeah. Just holding up a sign. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it was, and probably the crew, recognize that it was a successful solid episode like this is what we like and and i guess it says here and who knows there's no quote but then bruce tim said there weren't a lot of clayface episodes because one it was really expensive to animate mm. uh and, and two it was just hard to come up with ideas which uh I, you know i, I guess I, it sounds like they just had reverence for the character and wanted to make it worthwhile and i feel like this one does it yeah um, so we kind of kick off with a classic Clayface scene, uh, which is him impersonating somebody uh, as he sort of breaks into Tarnower Financial, <laughs> uh, a company that I don't know if we've heard of before this episode. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, but, he, you know, he, he we have our goofy guard, Billy, who doesn't, you know, recognize or he kind of does a double take when he sees the same guard walk in. Uh, which we quickly realize is Clayface, but he's, you know, this this guard wants to check Mr. Tarnower's office, uh, so he's kind of sweating, though. Uh, and this is sort of the first indication we get that, like, ultimately Clayface is falling apart, literally. Yeah. Uh, he can't really keep his shape-shifting powers, which I think is such a... That's such a fun wrinkle. Uh, I think it's it's really nice. It kind of takes the power away and makes it different and emotionally kind of devastating in a new way. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And just a, an observation I had, and maybe it's just because of the, the types of buildings we have in the UK, but um, that Tarnhauer Financial Building is only four floors, but it looks massive. It looks like it goes up hundreds of feet. So they've just yeah. got really high ceilings on each floor, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the ceilings are 30 feet each. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's that expressionistic sort of like high angle or low angle, like imposing building shots. Yeah. That, uh, but also, 
maybe just a production inconsistency. <laughs> no, it was deliberate. It was intentional. I won't hear it. It's all intentional. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with the show. When his bat symbol switches the yellow and the black, they're doing it on purpose to keep <laughs> us on our toes. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I remember as a kid watching, I think it was like Heart of Ice, and I was like, his bat symbol, it switched colors in that shot. <laughs> and I, it blew my mind. I was like, wow. Yeah, those Even are the they make mistakes. In my mind as well. And you know, having no knowledge of the animation process, you know, they would individ- they would send the, the their drawings off to the other side of the world and have someone who's maybe not at all familiar with with the characters or or anything to do with it, just tracing it out on cells, coloring it in individually one by one. It's it's amazing to think that people actually put that much time and effort into animation in in those days. I say this as someone that's pretty ignorant to the the animation process now i know that computers are widely used but uh uh-huh. yeah it depends i mean i know at least for our show at cartoon network it's still shipped off to korea and stuff uh and so i mean that's one of the the great uh, i i think one of the one of the long-standing weirdnesses to me is that the korean animators and directors are not credited for the most part Mm. uh in the credits even though they're doing a lion's share of work as well and it's a completely separate crew so uh you know the production companies usually you know the the animation studio is like put in there it's like animation by this but you know we somehow favor all of the individual crew members you know on the american or wherever side of things uh you know kind of western side of things um but it's 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 weird that we're not crediting the animators who are putting in all this work and Totally, like you. I feel like if we grew up seeing the names of the people who did that work and were the directors of the, you know, because you'll have a director for a particular episode, uh, we'd probably be like, oh, we like this person's work. You could tell yeah. the way that we'd see, like, you know, a Dan Reba episode or you know, Kevin Altieri. It's like, oh, I connect with this person. Uh, but I saw that those new Looney Tunes shorts on uh, HBO Max, they credited everybody, and I thought that was really cool. So I was like, I'm hoping this is a, the the direction that we go because we're so interconnected and you know it's it's not like the globe is is that small now that uh, we've had the internet for years and years so let's 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 give people credit where credit's due uh, yeah there we go and that's it no talk <laughs> anymore that's it we're done <laughs> got, on a, got on my goopy soapbox um but yeah so we you know billy goofy billy the security guard sets off the silent alarm and you know basically gives chase to this imposter in Tarnower's office. And we sort of, uh, we, we have this sort of reveal, Batman shows up. Um, yeah, so one of the things I thought was quite interesting about this scene is that I, I remember reading an interview years ago with Paul Dini saying that he always found Clayface hard to write for because, you know, does he take on the abilities of the people he impersonates? You know, could he just grow wings and fly away? I think this scene tells us that Matt Hagen is actually a really good impressionist because yes. he's given away by the fact that he got the accent wrong. So it's not just some you know, ornate ability that he looks like them, therefore he sounds like them. He's actually putting on a voice. Yeah, I love that. I love their rules to him. Because, yeah, I would imagine like he probably couldn't take flight uh just based on the physics of how his clay body works even though I, i'm okay with a big crab claw and i'm like yes of course this makes sense but uh flying i don't know about that but uh i think you got to put limitations on some of these guys and i think it does make it more character based yeah it's about how good an actor he is and generally he does seem like a good impressionist 
but I like that they sort of call that out. Whereas I think in the feet of clay, like he does a spot on Bruce Wayne impression. Uh, you know, nobody bats an eye, Lucius Fox, especially, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, it's much more interesting. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, you know, whatever this (laughs) imposter who we know is Clayface, because we're adults and we've seen this episode and probably if we hadn't, we'd know it's Clayface, uh, takes on Billy's appearance and tells Batman he caught the thief, but you know, Batman examines Billy's body and finds this strange clay-like residue. So... Pretty quickly, it's Clayface uh, who flees the building. Uh, and that's sort of where we get this hint of like, oh, well, something's weird. Something's up. He's not staying to fight. Yeah, that's right. And that scene where he escapes uh, by jumping out of the window, it's almost a mirror of the way that he escaped when he overexerted himself in Feet of Clay Part 2. Except this time when he lands, he kind of, it's much messier. Uh, and he's kind of agonizing and wincing as he's pulling himself back together. Whereas in Feet of Clay, he had that uh, grin on his face. He was very satisfied with himself as he kind of slopped away down the sewer. Yeah, yeah. We, we can immediately see like, oh, he's starting from a space uh, of, of weakness, uh, which is, again, so much more interesting. And again, this episode is pretty much, you know, more about Matt Hagen, more about Clayface than it is Batman. Uh, like most of the good Batman episodes, I feel like, in this series. Um, and I mean, they even introduce a new character, which is wild. Uh, I think I talked about this in the Feet of Clay episode that was released, but I, I was kind of bummed that, that we didn't see uh, his, I guess, friend, potential lover from the first two-parter uh, mm. show up again. I feel like there was so much good character work there that I would have loved a little bit of uh, his involvement in this. Uh, but we do see sort of Matt Hagen as an opportunistic kind of abuser. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, definitely. Not kind of. He's definitely, I mean, he's smashing yeah. TVs again, so exactly. you know he's bad. He could have just turned it off, but no, it's much easier to just punch it, right? Yeah. So actually, I, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit here, but that reminded me very much yeah. of uh, Stanley Kowalski in uh, Streetcar Named Desire. There's a, there's a scene where um, he's asked um, by Stella to to help put the um, put the dinner plates away or something and he just picks them up and throws them on the floor and he says that's how i tidy up do you want me to continue help tidying up it reminds yes. me very much of that yeah that's i mean that's exactly who he is uh mm. and it feels like a, a man whose rage is kind of out of control uh and and it he's yeah. pretty much doing the same thing to stella which i'm sure is no coin you know coincidence that this is the the doctor's yeah. <laughs> name who is helping him turn into you know at least an oscar uh and and because she she's in love with the idea of him we kind of learn that she's obsessed with his films and especially what was the name of the one the dark interlude yes which is like kind of a a version of dark victory uh or a take on an old hollywood film dark victory which interestingly enough is also the name of uh i think the follow-up to the long halloween (laughs) yeah that's right so, uh, yeah, just, just kind of film references up the wazoo. I mean, you know, again, jumping ahead, Clayface screams Stella, <laughs> you know, like yeah. Streetcar. Yeah, it's kind of funny how he just very slowly kind of drops to his knees so he can get into that Stanley Kowalski position and then go, Stella! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was I a little it. contrived, but I love it. Yep, jinx. <laughs> yep, I mean, it's, it's real goofy to watch later because I think a lot of that stuff didn't, I didn't, it went over my head. I, as a yeah. kid, I did like Hitchcock, 
So uh, weirdly got, you know, I mean, the most basic of Hitchcock references, which is, you know, I think Bates comes up and then yeah. I think her name is Stella Bates. Is that? That's right. Yeah. And she sold her and motel to pay for this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So like, you know, as a kid, I thought that was so cool. They made a reference. I get it. It's a Norman Bates thing. Uh, but everything else was completely over my head. Uh, and, and, you know, I, every time I've talked to the people who made the series, especially uh, on the, the visual end of things, but even even the writers, I think they all universally grew up on Hitchcock and that style of uh, really clean, boarded storytelling. I mean, like you watch a lot of these Batman episodes and they feel like, especially the mysteries, especially the thrillery sort of segments, they're really they really lean into a lot of like Hitchcock style filmic storytelling, which uh, it's fun. <laughs> they're just like, you know, hitting the nail on the head in this episode. Yeah, definitely. It's another element of it that, I, that kind of reminds me of Hitchcock movies is just the way that they use silence. Um, like traditional cartoons might have, you know, constant background music and, you know, they'll, they'll obviously they'll have limited budgets. So they'll just write, you know, three or four different jingles that will play throughout the cartoon. Whereas these episodes completely unique score every episode. And um, I find that the, the long protracted moments of silence really kind of emphasize the tension and the, just this, I don't know, it's like a sense of mystery and it kind of builds a little anxiety in me as well. And then you get the the pop from the music when it plays. It's, it's a really fantastic way of, I don't know, just emphasizing everything that's happening in the episode. I love it. It's mesmeric is the word I would use yes. to describe it. Oh, damn. Yes. Mesmeric has never been used on this podcast and it needs to be used more. Yeah, it We've is. said it twice. <laughs> mesmeric, mesmeric, mesmeric. <laughs> We're going to go for the Guinness World Record for saying mesmeric in a podcast episode about Batman the Animated Series. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. I, the, and the silence of the show, I think, is is such a something that doesn't show up elsewhere. I, this is why I love that it's 22 minutes. I think, you know, we have space for that silence. Uh, it's not an 11-minute cartoon, which you see a lot these days. Um, so it's cool that we have those moments and yeah, like any good horror or any, anything with suspense, you need silence to be the, the other end of, uh, the scare or, or at least like the reveal. So we, we kind of need to play both ends of it for it to work. Um, and so I guess diving back into the episode, I'm trying to see, we sort of left off with, uh, so Batman gave chase, Clayface jumped, uh, he gets rescued by Stella. This is our intro to Stella. Uh, and she takes Clayface to her laborator- laboratory and uses this big, like, pressing machine uh, to press a mold of him, which also feels like a toy, which is what I like about it. Yeah. Like, you know, he feels like an action figure as well as an Oscar statue. Yeah. Do you remember the uh, Terminator 2 action figure line? There was, yes. There was an exact thing like that where you could put in the, the, the Terminator um, skeleton and then you could, like, press a skin on top of it. It reminded me of that. Oh, I miss, you know, 80s, 90s toys. More 90s was, was where I, what I grew up with, but I feel like I, I inherited some of the uh, older 80s stuff, and it's just like, you know, the, not not as much plastic being used today for kids' stuff. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, I miss those, like, kind of, like, kits. Like, I remember there was, like, a Venom ooze kind of uh, yeah. kit. Or, or like, t- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like, slime, you know, or, or ooze also. Like, which always dried up inevitably like they didn't work <laughs> great but they you know there was something about that feature that was so cool as a kid very creepy crawlers 
So we have Stella. She takes Clayface to her lab, uses that machine, and it basically knocks him out for a while until he wakes up. And this is where he lashes out at her for watching, you know, his old movie. Uh, and, you know, clearly he's just kind of using her uh, almost immediately. Like, he doesn't care. Uh, he just needs to get what he wants. Uh, and he, she's just immediately apologetic. Um, but he apologizes to her and shows, you know, she's like, there's a way that we could re- restore your powers using MP40, uh, this, this chemical that we need to steal. So, and w- where does it? reside well wayne biomedical lab so that sort of is our we're back to clayface stealing from batman unwittingly (laughs) yeah yeah and i thought it was quite interesting this episode has got one of the few cases i can think of where bruce wayne is actually doing his day job you know he's yes he's sitting there at his desk he's undone his tie a little bit he's reading through some papers going this is hard the ceo stuff (laughs) can you imagine can you imagine spending all night fighting crime being tormented by everything and also trying to to be the CEO of a company, like he, the fact that he's actually paying attention to it is wild to me. I'm like, yeah. maybe you're not the man to be making decisions. You got to get some sleep, dude. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's a kid show. Kids probably don't need to see, uh, you know, the ins and outs of business. But I, it, it's interesting that like we do, we always check in a little bit with it more than I think you'd see in other kid shows. Um, but you know. Meanwhile, Batman's kind of checking out a sample of Clayface's body at the Batcave, uh, and he basically learns that as a result of his Renew You overdose, Clayface's you know cellular structure is starting to break down. Uh, so he, he can't maintain who he is. He's literally falling apart, um, and so he kind of understands what Clayface is sort of up to, and that's sort of where the threads come together. Uh, is this where we have Alfred saying... Uh, your goose is cooked. <laughs> I think that was a little bit earlier, but he does have three really good lines here. I actually wrote them down so I wouldn't forget. Please, please, Let me please, see. please. Uh, let's see. So when Batman says that he's uh, the Clayface is losing his structural integrity, Alfred responds with, "I wasn't aware that he had any to begin with." <laughs> Burn, Alfred. <laughs> Uh, and then when Batman says, no, I mean, he's, you know, he's falling apart quite literally. Alfred responds, oh, how grotesque. Tea? <laughs> <laughs> and then when uh, they try and figure out what this mystery woman might want with Clayface, Alfred says, perhaps she enjoys mud baths. <laughs> yep. I mean, those, I think that's exactly the line I want Alfred to be writing. Uh, just to be a little bit catty. Uh <laughs> I, I feel like it's in line with, uh, I think maybe it's in Justice League, which I don't know if you ended up watching the other DC. Yeah, stuff. I did. Uh, but when the Flash finally, I think, comes down to the Batcave, uh, he's like, he says something. I, I just remember Alfred's response, like, and I thought Batman was the, you know, like, the yeah, detective. Yeah, was the detective, the yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't remember what the setup was, but it was such a, like, <laughs> Yeah, gotcha. I love Alfred. He's really cool. <laughs> He's great. Love the lion and the unicorn. Uh, that must have been a fun one, uh, I imagine. Just seeing a non-American episode, at least, but also stereotype, insane stereotypes. Yeah, yeah. It's like Britain hasn't looked like that for like a hundred years, but yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, they were like, all right. So Alfred came from a Charles Dickens novel, or something. Yeah. <laughs> he grew yes. up in a Dickens novel, uh, as well as like the 60s uh, avengers series maybe <laughs> yeah although i did like the 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 um the gangsters in that episode i think what adam ant voiced one of them he was like come on governor you're coming with me 
they're real 101 Dalmatians villains. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if that was bad, Red Claw's even worse. Just vaguely Eastern European. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No backstory to her whatsoever. She's just Eastern European and bad. Yeah, yeah exactly. Bad, capital B, with a growl. We, well, we get to the intrusion at Wayne Biomedical, uh, and he finds Clayface disguised as a woman uh, fleeing the building with a canister. Mm. Um, and he, he, this is where we get that sort of train sequence. Yeah, that's a really cool one. But can I just say that little girl on that train is incredibly rude. Can you imagine? <laughs> I, I just thought if I had, if I was sat with a, a child, if I had a child and they went, oh, look at that lady. She's covered in mud. I'd just go, shut up. Don't be so rude. <laughs> yeah. Show some empathy. Yeah, I, I would be humiliated by my child. Uh, in that moment. Uh, sorry, we're going to jump off the train right now. Um, I'll go first. Uh, my child deserves to live. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was a good creepy segment too, though. Oh, yeah. I love I love seeing that, like, just, just goopy, falling apart kind of sweat. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind really... of Cronenbergian body horror, isn't it? It's, it reminded me a little bit of The Fly, like, where I... I can't remember it exactly, but, like, Jeff Goldblum, like, feels his face and his jaw falls off or something. Yeah, I mean, it's Big Time Cronenberg. Mm. Uh, the original title of this episode, Big Time Cronenberg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then, you know, basically Batman and Clayface, you know, uh, fight. Uh, he kind of belt, melts back into his own form. He scares the passengers. But then Batman fights him, and Clayface jumps off the, you know, train out of the window after being sprayed with freezing gas. Um, and he lands in a cargo truck. Uh, or the truck's cargo hold, and he, he shatters, uh, which is kind of fun. Um, but, you know, he thaws out and escapes again, essentially. Yeah, I, I'm picking up on parallels with Terminator 2 again, because I swear there's a bit in Terminator 2, I could be completely wrong, where like the T-1000 gets knocked over and like his legs turn into his arms or something. I might be thinking of one of the later Terminator movies. That sounds about right. I mean, I know he gets frozen, too. Uh, yeah, and up shatters and then melts and comes shatter. back together. Yeah, yeah, it feels like they're pulling from all that stuff. Like it feels like a mix of Terminator Two and like Cronenberg stuff, and even like a bit of Akira. Uh, mm. So yes, it's, it's you know you got all the all the great goopy shapeshifters of that <laughs> era, um, and we kind of we get we dive into the finale. So like, well, first Batman goes back to the Batcave, and you know Alfred learns the identity of Stella. Batman kind of figures out her location from bank records uh, and tracks her to her lab by the ocean, which is this perfect, oh, I, the exterior of that. I love, I love where yeah. this final sequence takes place. Also, man, what a, what a, what a great piece of property. What a great lab. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it again, to say this, it, it looks like something out of a Hitchcock movie, you know, it wouldn't look at a place in North by Northwest or something like that. Yeah, Totally. Uh, it's got kind of vertigo vibes to me too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's just, it's beautiful. Um, and so, you know, we get back to the lab, Stella's pumping the MP40 into Clayface, uh, who is, you know, once again inside this plastic casing and it seems like it's working and then Batman arrives. And I feel like as much as I, I don't know why I sympathize with Clayface. Like they really do a good job because he is a shitty person uh, mm. But I think we feel his pain. The idea of like, 
he is about to get what he needs to survive and Batman gets in his way. So at least you can kind of empathize with why he hates Batman so much. It's like, couldn't you have just let it happen? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's it kind of speaks to... So Batman is obviously very compassionate in this show. He always offers to help people. And if they turn down his offer for help and they do something wrong, he strikes them down very quickly. Uh, yep. He's very like morally black and white either you know you're doing the right thing or you're doing the wrong thing um because uh, clayface stole that chemical and because he terrorized those people on the train uh he's in the wrong and he does not deserve what he has been given or what he has taken yeah. and that's sort of how he approaches clayface moving forward in the series i mean we have holiday nights which like is really just like a, a little interlude story there's no emotional there's no emotional investment in that story, but I think you get to growing pains in the new Batman adventures and what a, what a perfect, uh, I think third episode really mm. uh, with Clayface. Um, but then when he pops up in justice league, you know, we don't have a lot of time for Clayface's emotional story, but I think when we first meet him, he is stealing chemicals to try to essentially do something similar to this, this episode. And he's, you know, just like why why are you stopping me from doing this can't you just let me heal can't you just let me be i don't know so interesting question for you then do you feel like batman is justified in what he does or do you think that perhaps he's being a bit of an asshole i think it's both yeah i think it's you know it's it's a moral gray area because <clears throat> ultimately um clayface well here here's what i'll say i think that uh Batman's justified in taking Clayface down and, you know, Clayface should be sort of punished in some way or kept away from the public at large. But ideally, uh, he's somehow rehabilitated uh, if they know how to do it. Although I think almost every single time Clayface never is taken into like police custody, at least not in the show. Like there, he's not in Arkham. He's not in prison. He's a guy who always like is seemingly dead and then sort of reforms worse for wear than the last time. Um, except maybe in justice league when he's, you know, roughly able to keep his shape. But I think it just sort of ends up uh, being the Batman destroys everything in the process. Well, see, I, I think that Batman's the instigator, but I think Clayface actually destroys himself because he lashes out in a rage at Batman and he smashes his little Oscar press. That's true. You're right. And then he lunges at Batman and forces him outside. And he, again, he lunges at Batman off the cliff. You know, if right. he just kept the fight indoors, then he, well, he probably still would have died. But I think he's no. a victim of his own rage. Yeah. And I think that's a good, that's a good way of, of viewing it. Cause I feel like it's very deliberate storytelling to, to be mm. Clayface. Yeah. Victim of his own rage. Uh, a mesmeric approach. <laughs> to... <laughs> a villain's uh downfall but i, I <laughs> it's a real stretch but uh yeah we have that beautiful i mean you pretty much went through the beats of it but we have this beautiful fight scene outside especially and it's raining so clayface is you know just like falling apart and deteriorating as things are happening uh you know he's he's emotionally spiraling as his body is just losing any sort of integrity and he's lost all integrity at this point as a person Yes, definitely. And I just want to make a note, actually. I wrote down some of his dialogue, but he is such a ham, isn't he? Because yes. he's like, you've upstaged me for the last time, Batman. Time to bring down the curtain. 
It's time for your final bow. Yes. Only Ron Perlman could deliver those in, in ways that didn't sound as cheesy as they are. Because I feel like in the first, I mean, it kind of makes sense because he is an actor. He's he's kind of like a big, a big broad performer. But in the first two-parter, he didn't really have that. Maybe he was excited about his perfect death, death scene, you know. Yeah, uh, at the he wanted end, to see the notices or whatever it was, yeah. This one, they kind of lean into it a little more, and it's it's he, he gets some clock king <laughs> to him. <maybe. laughs> yeah. But I think Ron Perlman's performance really sells it, and I, I always buy it because he's an actor. But it's 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 we got some real '60s Batman <laughs> thrown in yeah. there too. It's 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 you're entirely right. It's down to Ron Perlman's delivery, and that it is actually quite menacing. Um, when in anyone else's hands, it, it would just be some campy dialogue, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> truly, uh, and. We even have Stella kind of lunging, you know, uh, mm-hmm. at, at Batman. Um, it's it's really, it's really sad because also she's he he uses kind of her the movie she loves to to manipulate her. It's really, it's fucked up. Yeah, it definitely is. And when I was rewatching it earlier today, uh, one of the things that kind of stuck stuck out to me was this isn't actually a cure to making Matt Hagen again. It's just to allow him to regain his composure and have more control over his powers. So a little bit like he is in New Batman Adventures where he could control bits of himself without being attached to them. Um, Whereas Stella is treating it like, oh, you could be Matt Hagen again. But personally, I mean, okay, he, he wants to be handsome again, but I think he would probably quite like to retain the shape shifting powers because he seems to get like a sick pleasure out of uh, of deceiving people and manipulating them totally yeah and i think that's part of it is you know she's seeing the best in him she's kind of blinded by the ideal you know actor character version of him and uh yeah he's not going to do that uh he'll use it when he needs to but he likes power he seems like you know a a power driven character um would have loved to see her again too but you know i think there were some there was a very cool issue of batman adventures i think it was like a dan slot his run on it which i'd recommend really was this like fan follow-up essentially he didn't work on the animated series but he's a great comic book writer this is the beginning of his career it feels like and he was given the keys to batman the animated series and the new batman adventures and he kind of grew out the world in a way that felt like yeah, I mean, he even took characters like Firefly and made them much more interesting than their episode. And I think he does a yeah. Clayface, Grey <clears throat> Ghost kind of crossover, which is yes. what a perfect... Yeah, it's like, yes, if this is true, of course these two characters should cross paths. So Batman kind of teaming up with Grey Ghost again um, to sort of figure out a Clayface-rooted mystery. Um, but it's, it's really great. And uh, it feels like a nice, nice extra episode after growing pains yeah i mean i think all of the the tie-in comics were fantastic um i I remember in in the uk they used to be reprinted in like extra large format is like like a um i don't know like a loose magazine rather than traditional comic book and i remember my my grandfather bought me one which was the uh clayface one which had summer gleason in it where she was investigating the um you know the invisible robber who just vanishes whenever he steals stuff and yeah surprise surprise turns out it's clayface uh that one sticks out in my memory because you know i was reading it no idea what the twist was turn the page there's clayface there <laughs> perhaps seven eight years old went, oh no <laughs> traumatized again 
<laughs> your grandpa's like, that's right. <laughs> and you just throw up all over him. Uh, <laughs> Were you there? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was the porridge, dear boy. Uh, your grandpa sounds like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's always, yeah, the tie-in comics are so fun. I kind of want to give them a reread just because especially the original run of Batman Adventures, mm-hmm. the beginning of Batman Gotham Adventures had some really good stuff. I mean, you have like Paul Dini writing some of them. You've got, you know, Glenn Murakami, uh, who's actually more active on Instagram now. Uh, and he's sharing really beautiful art uh, and designs and stuff. I'd recommend checking out if you like this show. Um, Will. But uh, there's... Yeah, and, and I love that this episode, Mudslide, uh, ends in Clayface, you know, potentially dying being thrown at, you know, diving into the ocean while it's raining, falling off this cliff. But, uh, you know, as we are being comic book fans know that anytime you fall into water, that, that bad guy is coming back. But the fact that like growing pains again, picks up on like him kind of losing his memory and not really being stable enough to form anything. So he forms this little girl cipher to kind of explore and poke around for him, not intentionally trying to manipulate Robin or anybody, but, uh, Again, you didn't have to have seen this episode to understand Growing Pains, but I love the little nods to continuity, which, uh, I don't know, make make the show feel like it exists in a, in a space that rewards viewers who've watched it for a while. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think the actual ending of this episode with just Stella weeping as Batman leads her away. Oh, my heart. Oh. God. Yeah, it's up there with, like, top, top saddest episodes, uh, you know. I mean... There's that. There's. I just remember there's one where Batman says to Robin, like, sometimes there are no happy endings. I think that might that be was, growing pains. That was growing pains, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that... All of, you know... Oh, there's so many of them that are just... They end so sad. And it's just like, that's it? You just fade out on that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, do you think Batman arrested her? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I... I, I wouldn't be surprised if he gave her a chance. I feel like Bruce Wayne likes giving jobs to people who he infers may be messed up but were uh, on the wrong path and, and could kind of be righted. Uh, I don't know. Oh, that would be so sad. Uh, but also, yeah, she was aiding a, and, and abetting a, a guy who's probably killed people. Uh, but actually, now you say that, thinking about the Clayface episodes, he is more of a thief, isn't he, for the most part? Because in in The Feet of Clay, he doesn't actually harm anyone. He, I mean, he terrorizes germs, nearly throws him off a roof. Uh, he humiliates Roland Daggett on TV and throws a bunch of goop on, on the henchman's hands and frightens Roland Daggett. But what does he actually do that's against the law in that episode, I suppose. Like, oh, property damage. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's kind of, on, on, in the grand scheme of things, he's fairly low level. Yes. Despite I mean, his I, fantastic I, powers. Exactly. I mean, that's what I love about him is that he is kind of a low level, uh, you know, like domestic kind of, he's, he's domestic violence waiting to happen. Uh, if yeah. It's not already happening. So, but he's, he is that kind of monstrosity and we're using genre to sort of uh, exaggerate and personify it, which I, I think is what makes him a successful villain. Uh, he feels real. He feels grounded, even though he's one of the crazier, more supernatural characters. Mm. Yeah, um, I think that's that's something that appeals to me as well. I've 
I, I said this earlier, you know, it's kind of like a, a British thing where we, we don't like our, our characters to be like all dashing and handsome and incredible and amazing. Um, I think the same is true of our villains. You know, we, we quite like them to be just really horrible. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, would you have any like kind of concluding thoughts on Mudslide? Oh, no. I mean, I think we've covered everything pretty much. I mean, I... I wrote my um, like my final paper at university on the changing image of, of Marlon Brando. So I could talk for hours about uh, you know, like the classic Hollywood male rebels. Um, I mean, in this case, like, I think Montgomery Clift is much more um, applicable because he has the parallels of being you know, a dashing, talented actor who had a car crash and smashed his face up and was never the same again, uh, descended into drugs and alcoholism and um uh, another very sad story uh it's mostly oh, forgotten yes. actually monty clift you know you talk to most people about him they've got no idea who he is but he inspired uh, a whole generation of actors from like al pacino robert de niro uh, dennis hopper they all cite him as being like big influences on just how uh how influential he was because you know back in the you know late 40s early 50s you had a lot of the the big stars that transitioned from the stage to the screen, but they were still acting as if they were on the stage. So it was grand gestures and speaking clearly so the people at the back can hear you. Whereas, okay, Monty Clift also came from, from the stage, but he was very much uh, a very introspective performer. He focused on you know, performing for the, the, the shot on the camera. So, you know, if he was at a great distance away, then okay, he'd do a large movement. But if it was for a close-up, he would convey an emotion through, you know, a movement of his eyebrow or, you know, a twinkle in his eye rather than saying, I am very sad right now. Mm-hmm. And that was, I, I think that was very transformative of um, particularly American cinema. But he said, you know, he's had a big influence globally, whether people know it or not. Well, thanks so much for for chat and bringing bringing so much like extra knowledge too to the podcast. I, I feel like it's it like fills it out because I mean I know about like the name Montgomery Clift is like yes I know this is a an old Hollywood actor but yeah I, I gotta check out more of his films and keep an eye out for that in particular because it feels like probably ahead of his time in terms of performance um, based yeah. on what you're saying. If you like sad stories, watch A Place in the Sun. A Place in the Sun. Okay, I do. Yeah. I like good, sad stories. I mean, we're talking about the saddest Batman stories, so absolutely. <laughs> uh, and one little bit of trivia that I forgot to mention was a poster for the film Dark Interlude uh, appears in the 2015 video game Batman Arkham Knight. It does. Um, an Oracle study, and the tagline is, she cured more than his body, she cured his heart, a line from That's right. this. When uh, I star that, I Hagen and Stella. <laughs> yeah, I think it was so fun that it was clear, like, people who made the game were fans of the animated series. I mean, obviously the voice cast and everything, too, but Dini being involved in the first couple. But, uh, yeah, thanks so much. This was great. This was, what a treat. A well-deserving chat about a well-deserving episode. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me on. Uh, I've looked forward to this for a long time, so it's nice to yes. finally sit down and do it. Me, too. Uh, thanks for waiting so long. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, likewise. And that was Luke Mears. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like the show, please rate and subscribe on Apple and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at BTAS Podcast and me at Hey Justin. 
If you would like to support the show and keep the episode archive free, up and running, you can go to patreon.com slash podcast. The reward tiers have been updated, so check that out. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Trela helped produce the theme song. Brian Holmes edited this episode, and Harry Chaskin is the booming voice of the podcast. Thanks again to my guest and Patreon contributor, Luke Mears. Lastly, thank you so much to Tori Malatia, who very kindly let me know... You cured more than my body. You cured my heart. Look, Tori, I'm, I'm in a long-term relationship. I'm not sure I, I want the public knowing about how I cured your body, let alone the heart, uh, but... You know, I I appreciate the sentiment, just not publicly. Okay, well, with that, it's time to wrap up this episode. See you next week for the continuing six-year anniversary of Batman the Animated Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.